It's Friday, August the 27th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, tragedy in Kabul and Australia's COVID-19 surge. First, the world in brief. President Joe Biden vowed retribution on an affiliate of Islamic State for an attack that killed at least 13 American service members and 60 Afghans. Quote, we will hunt you down and make you pay, he said in a speech at the White House. They were the first American military casualties in combat in Afghanistan since February 2020. The twin suicide bombings occurred outside Kabul's airport and a nearby hotel. Earlier, America warned that Islamic State Khorasan province, an IS affiliate in Afghanistan, was planning a terrorist attack. ISKP is an enemy of both the Taliban and of America. The number of new daily cases of COVID-19 in Australia exceeded 1,000 for the first time since the pandemic began. Sydney is at the centre of the fast-spreading outbreak of the Delta variant despite having been in lockdown for two months. Two hospitals in the city have set up emergency outdoor tents to help triage patients. Apple offered limited concessions to developers on its App Store as it seeks to resolve a class-action lawsuit brought by the makers of Fortnite, a video game. Developers would, for example, be able to inform users about ways to pay for services outside Apple's payment system, from which the tech giant receives a healthy cut. The proposal must first get the court's blessing. Michel Barnier, who led Europe's Brexit negotiations, said he would run in France's presidential election next year. Mr Barnier held a number of national and EU posts during his long political career. He will have to see off at least four other members of the increasingly right-wing Republican Party, perhaps in a primary before facing the centrist incumbent Emmanuel Macron. Last week, 353,000 Americans filed for unemployment benefits for the first time, a proxy for layoffs, up slightly from the week before. The number is near a low point since the pandemic began, a sign of recovery in the labour market. Meanwhile, GDP growth in the quarter to the end of June was revised, up slightly from 6.5% to 6.6%. Revenues at Salesforce grew by 23% year-on-year in the three months ending on July 31st, faster than analysts had forecast. Since 2016, the software giant has spent over $25 billion snapping up a dozen companies to bolster its computing tools. The pandemic has helped propel Salesforce to ever greater heights as offices closed and businesses rushed to move their operations online. Qantas reported an annual loss of 1.83 billion Australian dollars, 1.37 billion dollars, thanks mainly to coronavirus-related restrictions on international travel. Overall, the Australian airline says it has lost revenues worth 16 billion dollars due to the pandemic. Alan Joyce, the boss of Qantas, said that, quote, trading conditions have been frankly diabolical. And fact of the day, 1964, the year a landmark free press ruling was made in America. Two Supreme Court justices are now taking aim at it, saying it has become a subsidy for the publication of falsehoods. And now, here's today's agenda. Tragedy in Kabul, Islamic State strikes. As the deadline to conclude the evacuation of Afghanistan loomed, the drumbeat of warnings grew louder. On August the 24th, President Joe Biden warned of a risk of a terrorist attack at Kabul's airport. On August the 26th, at least 60 Afghans and 13 American troops were killed in two suicide bombings carried out by Islamic State Khorasan Province, ISKP, an IS affiliate. 
Mr Biden has promised that evacuations will continue, but given the perilous condition at the airport, America may be forced to rely on helicopter flights into Kabul to extract American citizens. Mr Biden has also requested a list of ISKP targets, vowing retribution. Mr Biden's White House may downplay the political risks, but the attack echoes past American fiascos, from the hostage crisis in Iran in 1979 to the assault on America's consulate in Benghazi, Libya in 2012. For Afghans reeling from the Taliban's lightning victory just 11 days ago, the attacks heaped tragedy upon tragedy. See you in court. Same-sex marriage in India. Nine in ten Indian marriages are still arranged by parents. The same proportion get hitched to members of the same caste. But wider change is afoot. Today a high court in Delhi will examine a pile of petitions demanding the right to same-sex marriage. Gay activists insist that the Indian constitution's emphasis on equality militates in favour of broadening the scope of marriage. The courts tend to agree. Two years ago, one senior judge approved a marriage between a Hindu man and a transgender partner. The Supreme Court's own ruling on gay sex was blunt, quote, society has no role to play in our choice of spouses, it said. The ruling Bharatiya Chanata Party, however, is against altering the traditional definition of marriage. Its top lawyer argues that a ruling by the Supreme Court in 2018 had merely decriminalised, not legitimised gay sex, quote, Personal laws recognise only heteronormative marriages, declares a government affidavit. Interference in this would cause havoc. Free at last? Voting rights in America. 58 years ago this weekend, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Martin Luther King made a famous speech clamouring for racial justice. Tomorrow, thousands will rally there to press for further progress towards equal voting rights in America. Republican efforts to restrict the franchise have intensified this year, following Donald Trump's lie that the electoral fraud cost him re-election as president last year. Since January, at least 18 states have enacted 30 laws to make it harder to vote, such as by limiting postal and early voting and by imposing stricter requirements for identity documents. Democrats say that this will disproportionately depress turnout among racial minorities and young people, the two groups most likely to vote for them. Earlier this week, the House of Representatives passed a bill to restore federal oversight of some states' discriminatory voting laws. Named after the late John Lewis, a civil rights activist and congressman, it stands little chance of winning enough Republican support to clear the Senate. Not over by a long shot, COVID-19 in Africa. As a third devastating wave of COVID-19 slowly ebbs in Africa, health ministers today wind up a conference convened by the World Health Organization on how to fight the disease more effectively. The picture remains grim. Only 2.6% of Africans are fully vaccinated, making further waves inevitable. The biggest problem remains getting enough vaccines, and with many rich countries prioritising booster shots, this may soon become harder. African leaders, however, hope that schemes to produce more COVID-19 vaccines in Africa itself could help to fill the gap. But these will take time. Getting available jabs into arms is tricky too. In West Africa, only 38% of the doses received have been administered compared with 76% in East and Southern Africa and 95% in North Africa. Policymakers are trying to learn from each other to improve their campaigns promoting inoculations. But they face a fundamental tension. 
Mass campaigns to encourage vaccination are tricky when you do not have masses of vaccines. Footnote, what Afghanistan means for global jihadism. What's next for jihadism? Several correspondents from The Economist weighed in this week on how the Taliban's takeover in Afghanistan could inspire jihadist insurgencies, not just in next-door Pakistan, but across the world. The first question Daniel Knowles, our international correspondent, wanted to answer in his reporting was how Islamist militant groups elsewhere reacted to the Taliban's victory. He called experts at BBC Monitoring who follow jihadist media closely. That conversation kick-started a series of other interviews. One of the most useful non-fiction books that Robert Guest, our foreign editor, read on the topic was The New Threat by Jason Burke, a journalist at The Guardian, with whom Daniel had previously worked in Africa. It looks at how jihadism has evolved in the years since terrorist attacks on America on September the 11th, 2001. Robert also recommends a fictional attempt to understand why young men joined jihadist groups, born on Tuesday by Elnathan John. In this gripping novel, a Nigerian writer describes how a radical preacher entices penniless youth into a death cult. A lot of our correspondents' insights came from bootleather reporting in places such as Gaza, Iraq, Mozambique and Sahil, where Sophie Peda, our Paris bureau chief, was recently embedded with France's counter-terrorism force. Besides using contacts in the French armed forces, Sophie referred to the English translation of Gilles Capel's study, Jihad, the Trial of Political Islam, which is a useful starting point for the global jihad seen through the eyes of a French scholar. Two English-speaking Sahel watchers who provide knowledgeable insight into French operations in the region are Andrew Leibovitch of the European Council on Foreign Relations, who recorded this recent podcast, and Michael Shurkin of RAND Corporation, who co-wrote this report on what might happen if France left Sahel. The writings of Wassim Nasser, a journalist for France 24 who publishes periodic English reflections on jihadism in Sahel, are also worth a read. To find out what our recommendations are for how to curb jihadism in the long run, read this week's leader. Summer Quiz, the winners, week six. This week we randomly picked winners from hundreds of correct entries and a crowning one for each continent. First, the answers. The Soviet film from 1925 directed by Sergei Eisenstein was Battleship Potemkin. Michael Lewis's The Fifth Risk recounted the lack of preparedness of the Trump administration for crisis management. The Mousetrap is the longest-running play in the West End with nearly 70 years of shows, and the name of the dog that Richard Nixon cited in a famous speech in 1952 that saved his career was Checkers. The theme connecting them all is board games. Kudos and celebrations for our knowledgeable winners. Asia, Andrew Zimmerman, Tokidi, Japan. Africa, Ewan Hickling, Stellenbosch, South Africa. North America, Adam Bartos, Edmonton, Canada. South America, Felipe Gomez, Porto Alegre, Brazil. Europe, Victor van Wassermeer, Giel, Belgium. Oceania, Peter Sloan, Melbourne, Australia. There were no entries from Antarctica. Thank you to everyone who joined in this week. Stay tuned for an even trickier set of questions next week. Finally, here's the quote of the day from William James. A great many people think they are thinking when they are merely rearranging their prejudices. 
That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist radio podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening. 